Hi there, welcome to this episode of Community Talk. I'm your host, Peter J. with the Redline Real Estate Group. Today's guest is Rick Titan, former WWF champion and now coach. This was an amazing episode. We went over uh, Rick's history into the WWF and uh, other wrestling careers, and uh, we talked about the transition that he had out of that, um, some of the struggles and some of the things he's learned about life, and uh, also his new course and coaching that he offers. So uh, welcome, my friend, Rick Titan. All right, we're recording. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Community Talk. I'm your host, Peter J. with the Redline Real Estate Group, and I am beyond excited because across from me is true, true greatness that lives here in our city, the master coach, uh, formal, uh, former professional wrestler with the WWF, Rick Titan. Rick, thank you for being my guest today. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here and glad to share things with people. It's been a lot of changes over the past few years, actually even a couple of years and uh, massive changes over the last 17 years. So uh, let's start talking about it. That's right. Let's let's kind of like, well, let's tap on from the almost the very beginning of uh, because I, th- I think a lot of people they 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 know you from either your public speaking now or more from the wrestling. Is that correct? I think nowadays it's probably more for the public speaking. I it's it's funny because people say to me, "Do you get recognized when you go out?" And I said, "Not really from the wrestling." You know, I had I was two hundred and eighty pounds and I had long hair back then. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so it's a, a completely different look now, and uh, I do try to promote and I promote events and, and my coaching. Um, but typically, yeah, it's it's more from today's stuff, which I'm really happy about because uh, the people that want to learn what I have to offer today, the information that I've been studying for the past 17 years, is not really geared towards a wrestling audience. Right. So yeah. well, then, let's backtrack. How did you become a wrestler? Like, what was it about that? Did you kind of like fall into that, or was it what happened in your point in life where you're like, I'm going to become a wrestler? It was a complete accident. No, okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I started lifting weights when I was about eight years old, and I had this passion for it. And I always wanted to be big and strong. And, and my dad was a real hard worker. He never worked out with the weights before, but uh, he was in, always in great shape. And then I started seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno play the Incredible Hulk, and seeing these guys in the magazine. So I wanted for Christmas a plastic sand-filled set of weights. From there, I got uh, leg extension, leg curl, and I said, Mom and Dad, I need a, an incline for my upper pecs. <laughs> What's 12. an upper pec? Yeah. <laughs> and so I got that and started doing martial arts when I was a teenager and I watched wrestling on TV. And I didn't watch it as a kid, as a lot of people would assume. I didn't start watching until I was a teenager, but I was already about six foot five at 16, doing martial arts. I could slam, slam dunk a basketball, and I thought, I watched these guys on TV, and I thought I could do that. Totally. Yeah. So then, but then what's the, what's the step that you took to get into the ring? Because I mean, uh, for me, I feel like uh, I'd be able to join a basketball team a bit easier than getting into the wrestling business. Yeah. And, and did you think, did you know you were getting into a business when you first got in there? I didn't think of it as a business and I thought, you know, at a young age, it was just something I really wanted to do. I didn't really care about the money. Uh, and then I, as I got a little bit older, into my 20s, I thought, well, I'll do what I love and the money will follow if I'm good enough at it. And really, you have to be obsessed, not good at something like that. So yeah. is that true in your experience? Do you find that's true if um, you, you, <clears throat> you believe in it enough and you love it enough that you can make the money? Yes. Okay. Um, 
I mean, there's there's certain things, the economic environment and things like that that might pull you back. Uh, I also knew and had the intellect to know that I'll never be a horse jockey. I'm six foot six, right. two fifty right now. <laughs> okay. You know, and and uh, a guy who's five foot ten will probably never make it in the NBA. And actually, even at six foot six, I'm too short for the NBA. So, what? Yeah. Really? Right. Yeah, those guys are mostly six foot eight, six foot ten. And You're on the short side yeah. for the NBA. Okay, yeah. Yeah. and I'm a towel boy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so a little bit of common sense in there too, but. Something that you may have tried, something you have a real passion for. Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich, which is one of my favorite books, said have a burning desire. And I always call it a blazing goal. And for some fluke reason at 16 when I watched that on TV, I just thought I can do that. I know I can do that. And, and I, I, I want to do that more than anything else in the world. So at a really young age, which a lot of people don't have, and some are aimless till they're in their 20s or 30s practically, but you can really get that blazing goal at any point in your life. And that's part of the program I've been creating, Power, Profit, and Stress-Free, because there's no point in having a whole bunch of power, and there are different kinds of power, which we can talk about in a bit, and or a whole bunch of profit, tons of money, which I was never a millionaire in wrestling, but I made a fair amount of money, but then stress-free. And I definitely was not stress-free. Right. I was a wig out when I was in my 20s. I mean, I just it was almost impossible to get along with. I had a short fuse. I was angry all the time. And so that's what kind of got me into spirituality and personal development in the first place. Right. So back to that blazing goal or that feeling. Mm -hmm. What Describe that feeling when you knew. When you were watching wrestling that one day and you knew you were going to go for it. Because it is a feeling. Yeah. I think it's an inspiration. I think it's something you feel in your guts. I think it's when your cells tingle, you know, and, and you can feel the blood either draining out of your face or draining into your face and that tingling and, and a certain knowing and whatever that knowing is, it could be from God, could be from the universe, it could be just all your cells in your body telling you, I have to do that. That's, that's what I'm meant to do. That's my purpose. And it was my purpose for a time, but of course not anymore. Right. Right. So um, talk about some of the sacrifices you had to make to make it to. Uh, it's not easy being in the wrestling business, let alone making it to the top like you did yourself. What kind of sacrifices did you have to make to do that? Well, a lot of people just discredit it and say it was fake. Um, you know, it, there were choreographed moments, yes. And um, there was a chosen winner and a loser beforehand, yes. So I guess if you categorize What are they called? The heel? Yeah, the, the heel and the baby face, right. the bad guy, the good guy. Uh, but pressing a 280-pound man over your head is not fake. Most people can't do it. Taking a steel chair shot is not fake. You can't fake that. Uh, the sacrifices were really being obsessive about it. Again, that blazing goal. I would watch wrestling, even with ex-girlfriends, which I'm sure they didn't enjoy all that much looking back on it. But I would watch wrestling. I I pick it apart, I dissect it, I go, can I do that move, can I do that move, and why is that character on TV really popular, why is that one so hated, what are they doing, and I, I just picked it all apart, you know, and um, it wasn't really a fluke, I had to mentally really get my head in the game, plus I was working out about two and a half to three hours a day at that point, and I was force feeding myself about eight times a day, which I read in the bodybuilding magazines, and a lot of the guys in the gym, that if you wanted to get really big and really strong, you had to really eat about eight meals a day, sometimes uh, up to 10,000 calories a day. Well, and, and that gets kind of sickening to the stomach after a while too, plus all the proteins, creatines, and glutamines, and everything else. 
Uh, and then it became the traveling, really. It was a lot of sacrifice. It was really hard to maintain relationships, uh, hard to maintain a love relationship because there was a lot of mistrust, probably on both sides. And, uh, and, and it wasn't as glamorous as people think, you know. It's funny because uh, a lot of the girls that would chase after us on the, on the bus in Japan or in the States are not... Uh, the kind you'd like to bring home to your mother. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but being away for that long of a period of time, also the friendships, you know, people get spited. They, you come back and you wouldn't see them for a while, or you come back just for two weeks and go away again for two weeks. And a friend, because you spent most of the time with your girlfriend, I would think you're not really their friend because you didn't get a chance to see them. So friendships were, were tough, and it was a really, there was a lot of solitude to it, you know, and the hotel rooms were boring and lonely a lot of times, and uh, and the pain, you know, it got worse and worse as the years went on, and uh, pretty soon I was sore from my ankles all the way up to my head with headaches, neck aches, and eye aches, and yeah. everything else. Uh, then you get to a certain point where you go, is this worth it anymore? Whereas the beginning, oh, I love this, I've got to do it, it's... It's me, it's everything for me. It was my whole life. And then after a certain point, you kind of go, yeah, is this really worth it? All right. Yeah. And so at that point, because you really, um, was it more the injury that you had, the neck injury that you had that got you out of wrestling and that you had to make that choice? Was like was that kind of like uh, the crossroads, if you will, of do I continue down this path of wrestling? Because everything you just described didn't seem good at all. Like it doesn't seem like it was. Um, like you said, you didn't make the million dollars, and and there's obviously a lifestyle to it that didn't seem very beneficial for you in any way. So like, uh, I'm just curious. Um, yeah, like that. That's was it. The crossroads. Do you think that that happened for a reason? Now the the injury, or were you moving towards finding another path for yourself anyway? Well, I could rewind because you asked about you know the challenges of it. I mean, the other parts were that I was as big and strong as I could possibly ever be. And so for a lot of men, or even most men, at least at some point in their life, teens, twenties, to be that big and that strong, and that powerful. I also did some bouncing in between tours. I could grab a guy by a jean jacket and throw him against the wall 10 feet away. I mean, that the sense of power with that was amazing. And get in the ring and press the guy 280 pounds over my head. And I mean, people cheering, like people loving it, wow. right? Yeah, like, yeah. crowd reactions. What a high that was. And the adrenaline from it. And, and just the fact that you knew that 99% of the population couldn't do what you're doing just because it was so physically strenuous and you had to be on your game every single night. You had to be explosive. The psychology and the crowd psychology of taking people through immense highs and drastic lows and knowing you're doing it all with your mind and, and just your physique. The traveling, I got to travel the world, Austria, Germany, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Japan 73 times, all over the US and all over Canada. Wait, you went to Japan 73 so times? Back and forth 73 oh times. God. Uh, it, it was a really amazing experience. So, I mean, those are some of the good things, you know, and people worshiping you. I mean, in a way, uh, today it doesn't matter to me. Today it would be more of the fulfillment of sitting down, as I just had a coaching session earlier with somebody, and seeing how much they've changed over the last few months and seeing how much better they've gotten. But to answer your question, uh, the last two years I was doing it, I was in Japan again, and I was in the top company out there, and it was really hard hitting. 
I mean, karate kicks to the chest, full-on chops. Not the not the wrestling we see here, yeah. like in North America, right? Yeah, and in Japan, you had to go through junior high or high school and do martial arts, kendo, judo, or karate, and so they knew their stuff. Whereas down in the southern states, especially, you could put two fingers around a guy's wrist, turn a circle, and it'd be a wrist lock, <laughs> and, they, and they'd be cheering it if right. you're a good guy. Uh, you couldn't get away with that stuff in Japan. You know, you had to be a legit fighter. A lot of guys who did the really flaky wrestling were brought out for one tour and never brought back. I mean, it was really tough. And I was also getting to an age, like I said, where, man, I was in pain constantly from my, my eyeballs down to my ankles. And it was probably the last two years I thought, well, what am I going to do with my life after this? Right. Because this is running out. You know, my body can't move the same anymore. I was stiff and sore waking up in the morning, stiff and sore trying to warm up to get in the ring. Everything always hurt. I was always in kind of a cranky mood. Well, you're in pain, right? Yeah. And you're trying to do all the expectations and traveling and all that yeah. stuff in between. It's yeah. it, it sounds tough. Yeah, and the money was the best money I'd ever made in my life. And I was also a world heavyweight champion out there and a tag team champion. So there was all that glory and all that good to it. But it just seems to be like you're riding down a road to darkness and you don't know what you're going to do next. You have no idea. And you know your body's not going to last too much longer anyway. So the thought was constantly going through my head is, do I even want to do this anymore? I can't hold down a relationship. Uh, my friendships are really shallow. All those rainy day friends that when I had a lot of money and when I was popular or famous and on TV, they kind of disappeared when the TV was gone and the money was gone. Right. And that was a real downer afterwards. And I kind of saw that coming, but I just didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And it, it may have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. I got DDT'd for the heavyweight championship in New Japan Pro Wrestling by a guy named Hashimoto. And he was known for what we call being stiff for a crowbar. And he held on too tight. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get DDT'd and I'm going to lose the world heavyweight championship, I'm going to make it look like he killed me. And so, good thinking on my part. <laughs> I jumped a little too high, and I went to block straight down. And a lot of times, I'd kind of roll through a DDT. Okay. And if, for those of you who may not know what that is, it's when you hook somebody's head, they're looking backwards, you're looking the opposite direction. You drop backwards with their head into the mat. And so I dropped down. My feet were, I actually had a picture in a Japanese magazine. My feet were straight up in the air. I landed straight on top of my head. And uh, hairline fractured my C5, C6 vertebrae. And that was kind of the end of it. I had a few months af off after it, but I went back. Um, and we only had a one-year contract. And I think that was my last month of the one-year contract. And my neck was so bad that I was out there with on probably three times the amount of painkillers I'd ever taken out just to try and get through it with my neck and my body the way it was feeling and then after that my contract ran up and my neck was really bad I couldn't turn my head it was in constant pain it was really hard to stop taking any kind of painkillers and I knew that's that just wasn't the way I wanted to live anymore yeah so yeah unfortunately it wasn't necessarily a natural progression for you right it was uh your hand do you think you still would have done it for a few years though more if if that hadn't had happened the the injury I probably would have and the thing I looked at was that I was done close to the age of 30. And I looked at some of the guys who were done at the age of 40. And I thought, you know, thank God I'm not older and this happened. Because um, 
luckily I still had a bit of a brain about me. <laughs> well, and I think you you probably had some uh, a bit more youth to recover yeah. as well, right? Yeah. Like that injury could be a bit more significant for someone older. Yeah, and even at the same time, I could have been paralyzed from the neck down, so I thank God every day for that. Um, so I just had to figure my way into life after that and, and try and figure out what I really wanted to do, and I knew I loved being around people. Um, I think to be an entertainer, and uh, the, the more typical term for professional wrestling now is probably sports entertainer, uh, is being around crowds and getting the approval of those people. And, and you know, I, I'm a people pleaser. I think a lot of people are, and they can understand that. And that's what I love about coaching now or public speaking now. And the, the cool part about speaking is that I can get out there and take people on an emotional roller coaster ride again and tell them the story and not get hurt. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's really great to think about it. Yeah, yeah. you can still offer a really uh, exciting experience for them. That doesn't have to be physical. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting, man. That's super cool. Uh, I don't want to keep going on. I just have a few more questions in regards to the wrestling. Yeah. Um, and then, but we'll move on to that because you're so much more than that, right? Um, but I'm just curious, like, who is, uh, who is your <laughs> biggest opponent in the ring? that you found, like maybe whether it was physically challenging or uh, emotionally challenging, like what, talk about one of your favorite matches. I think the, the two best matches, well maybe three best matches that I had, one was with Mike Awesome, my old tag team partner, and uh, unfortunately he's passed away now too. And it was, we were a tag team for a long time in Japan and we were quite popular out there. And um, we had, won tag team championships and then they split the tag team up and we had a faction called Team Canada and they played a, a role of that, you know, he was jealous and he was an American and didn't want to be part of it anymore. <laughs> and we accidentally bumped into or hit each other during this tag team match and got angry with each other. And so they put us in a few matches together and then three big ones and whoever wins the two out of three or I think it was the final one, so he beat me twice. And um, wow, he's a big guy. He was about six four and a half, six five himself. He was about two eighty five. And uh, we we had talked before the match, and we said, okay, we're gonna lay everything in really hard. Yeah, we're gonna make these. We're fans. throwing down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, they're really tough matches, and uh, but you know very well choreographed as well. And we did things like a hurricane rana, whereas I would shoot him into the ropes, and I was six foot five and a half or three quarters. I'd jump up at about 285, 290 pounds, hook my feet over his shoulders, bridge back, and flip him <laughs> over. And that's a junior heavyweight move, you know. But I'm he sorry knew. to laugh because it's like you're so big right now, man. And like just imagine you flipping around like that. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah, we did things like presses over off the top ropes. Uh, real junior heavyweight moves, and we were super heavyweights. And I pressed them over my head and barely got him up there. What a strain that was. Of course, with a little help from his hands, pushing on my shoulders too, and him jumping. But uh, yeah, very, very physical matches. The crowd was going through the roof. And finally, we had the third one. And the third one was all through the Japanese magazine saying, well, if, uh, if Titan loses this match, then they're going to disband Team Canada altogether. Okay. So For all the marbles. Yeah, yeah. So we finally had that match, and and that was. I think we had gotten better and better with our timing together, and and how we were hitting each other pretty hard too. Yeah. So the fans, you know, pretty much thought it was real, and and it was, 
as close to real as I think you can get without actually being real. And I think the first time he phoned me in my hotel room in the morning, he says, hey, Titan, how you doing? I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he says, you feel like you just got in a car crash, man? <laughs> I said, yeah, I can barely move uh, right after the match. But uh, yeah, that was one of the best ones because it, it looked the most real, it felt the most real. Timing was perfect, distancing was perfect, crowd psychology was perfect, and people wanted to see this these ex tag team champions fight each other and, and again, like you said, for all the marbles. Yeah. There was another one with a guy named Sabu, and he was the actual original Sheik's nephew. But this guy could bounce all over the place. He could jump up onto the turnbuckle, drop down his hamstrings on the, the sort of spread legged moonsault, so that's a backflip. He could run, jump up into the middle of the rope drop down to his hamstrings and butt and flip back over onto you. I mean, it was amazing. The guy was like a, an acrobat or a ballerina or something. <laughs> and he was still, he was still about 225 pounds. So, you know, to do that kind of, that kind of flying around that he did, and he'd fly through the top ropes, over the top ropes to the outside. He'd backflip off the top rope and he'd get a guy to move and he'd smash through the table on the outside of the ring. And we always called him the man with the rubber bones because I don't know how he how he made it. Yeah. yeah, how can you not break bones doing that? But he never did. It sounds like um, chemistry is a big thing. Yeah. Whether you're a tag team partner or even an opponent. Yeah. In in that industry. Yeah. So like, talk about not having the chemistry and having to like go against. Well, someone. I got a couple of those for you too. So. Sabu and I just first, first had this match and we did these really cool things and things that nobody else had really done before but kind of simple where he'd go to jump up and give me a drop kick and then I'd just swat his legs out of the way. Another time I'd press him over my head so he'd have to do a back flip which is called a back drop but then the next one I'd just grab him by the hips and swivel his hips a little bit so he'd drop kick me. Another one called I'd just press him over my head and then slam him and then the next time I go to press him over my head and I hold him up there and he wiggle his legs and that looks like he's sliding down my back to go and do a, a kind of a back slide right. and take me down so <laughs> a lot of really neat back and forth and our timing again distancing was excellent we wrestled in Japan for years okay. before this so we really knew each other's moves really well and and the crowd was up and down and up and down and that's the fun of it the not so fun stuff was uh, I faced a tag team in the States and I think I'd been forgetting a couple of moves, really complicated tag team matches. Okay. And so they were suplexing me extra hard, slamming me extra hard. And that part wasn't so fun. And uh, even Stone Cold Steve Austin, he was coming up at the time. I went in as a second Razor Ramon. I wasn't getting a lot of respect for that role. And he mostly just tried to keep me to the ground. I think he thought I was some green guy. Didn't know that I just spent six years in Japan. Uh, and he didn't want to take any chances on getting hurt because mm -hmm. he was climbing the ladder so fast and his reputation was exploding at this time. Plus, he wanted to look good and get himself over. And uh, it was one of the most boring matches I had. Oh, really? Oh, man. It was just a drag, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, that was one of the bad ones. Uh, I had a decent one with Bret Hart until he put me in the sharpshooter. And I don't think he knew how hard he had it on. I'm about to say, does it hurt as much as it looks like it hurts? I would say he just about broke my back. Oh, yeah. my God, man. Yeah, I was I'm like, go, let yeah. go, let yeah, go. He's giving it, eh? Yeah. It's all for the fans, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um, let's transition. I mean, you know, you, 
you were the amazing world wrestler there, and then you you kind of found yourself you found yourself lost there for a bit, I guess, after transitioning, right? Yeah. Like you ended up. Uh, so, help me with the timeline. You you left for a bit, and talk about that. Talk about what happened, I guess, after wrestling, and to how you got to where you are right now. Well, it was a tough year after that. I think I, I had some depression. I was so used to the audience and the adrenaline boost, and if something wasn't fun or exciting for me, I was extremely bored. Everyday things that normal people just take for granted and just do, and they're still smiling, I was just frowning. I, I just didn't enjoy life at all. And I think I was semi-depressed for about a year afterwards, and I was still taking painkillers. And I was still in pain, too, but um, you know, pretty heavy painkillers that I knew I had to gradually get off of and an ex-girlfriend of mine kind of nagged me until I got off of him which uh, that didn't turn out so well with her but that part of it really right. helped change my life and uh, I just managed to roll back and forth on a couch and sweat it out and stop taking them which is you know it's a lifesaver so you'd say you were addicted I would say so I mean uh, you take heavy painkillers like that for a few years and they just get a grip on you yeah, not good for a person, not good for the mentality, psychology, and even basic intellect, and, and for your soul. I uh, guess if you don't have the even that support system around you to, uh, while using them, you know, to manage the pain, yeah. it uh, must be easier to a vice, a crutch. Yeah, yeah. And I also think at the time I didn't know the difference really between physical pain and emotional pain. Mm. And I think that's what happens to a lot of guys after they get out of, you hear so many deaths in, in rock and roll. You hear, I, I know 20 people as either friends or acquaintances that um, ended up passing away. And they say heart attack at 39, heart attack at 39, this, that, the other thing. And, and I know, I, I know what probably could have happened, you know, too many sleeping pills, uh, too many Oxycontin, Percocet, things like that are a mix of the above plus alcohol. And and to lose that career, I think you really have to love that career to be in it because it is so painful and sometimes it is so lonely and it becomes the love of your life because it's kind of always there for you. Well, and the sacrifices you talked, like you, yeah. you sacrifice so much to get to that point, hard to give up. Yeah, and then when it's all over, it's like you've got nothing. And unless you've got a really... Is it really that you have nothing or you feel like you have you nothing? You feel like you have nothing. Yeah. But to not have any other life skills and to have been doing that for 10 or 20 years and, and barely be able to change a light bulb in a house as far as uh, home maintenance, right. which most people are handy at, you don't know how. You lived out of a hotel. Right. Your life skills are you know, very, very slow. I think fortunately for me though there's there was still some strength there and people skills I think you learn you know signing autographs taking pictures at first it's based on ego after a while it kind of gets on your nerves when people are hounding you yeah but um, just smiling and being kind to people and then understanding where they are and if they are a fan hey you know what in my mind and especially near the end of it as I was getting a little more mature and I was starting to read a little bit on spirituality just near the very end, I started to think, well, you know, these are good people. These are good, kind people. And even though they want an autograph or a picture with this icon or this this character, which isn't really me, and it's funny, if I was just Rick, they wouldn't be running up to me for a picture or an autograph. But being that they are, I'm going to treat them kindly. And 
if it wasn't for the fan support too, I wouldn't have made the paycheck that I was making at the right. time too. So all these thoughts would go through my head and I was really kind to the fans. Even when I was a bad guy and some of the promoters or the other wrestlers uh, got a little choked with me because they said, well, you know, you can't be nice to the fans because right. you're the bad guy. And I said, well, the people came here and, and they paid maybe 200 bucks for a ticket, you know, and if I give them an autograph, maybe they'll come back the next time. Yeah. And they can still boo me and hate me while I'm in the ring. It's but part of the fun of wrestling. Yeah. People are loving the bad guys sometimes, yeah. right? Like, it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they've got a memento, and that memento will probably make them come back and pay another 200 bucks next time and maybe bring a friend. And that's kind of the way, and that's funny enough, before I even know what the word referral meant, I kind of knew what it meant. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, before you could put those pieces together in a way, right? Yeah. It's, uh, you were doing it. Um, so what was, I mean, how how long in, like, when you were having struggling with the prescription pills, mm-hmm. how much of it do you think was, like, percentage-wise, how much of it do you think was physical and how much of it was emotional? It's so hard to say because I did legitimately break my neck and... Uh, there was pain there, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a ton of whiplash, I think. You know, you jump up in the air, you weigh 280, 90 pounds, uh, fall down and snap your neck back uh, 15 times a night. And and it was five, six days a week. It wasn't like a lot of other sports where you go out twice a week to play the sport or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, It's like being in several car accidents. I don't think people understand that that's the main thing. And all that whiplash and, and the headaches and the neck aches and everything else... There was still a lot of pain. I'm still in, in a little bit of pain here and there, uh, you know, the odd day here and there and now too. Or maybe I'm in more pain and I don't even realize it and the average person doesn't have to live with it. Right. Um, I would say the equivalent of being in several car accidents and that's that's a lot of pain. So, but for me, I just knew that I was going to have to suck it up and just deal with the pain and do some physio and try and get better the best I could and, and just not have anything to do with them anymore. What uh, what did the day feel like where you, you actually knew, like, I'm off these. I kind of traveled to the next side and you're clean, if you will, yeah. right? Like, what did that feel like? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, it felt like I could move ahead with my life and not have that brain fog. Um, it felt like somebody, something had been controlling my life, that I was back in control of my life. Um the expense of them was uh, it was a relief to get away from too. Uh, they're not cheap, and so now I still talk sometimes at the Dream Center and, and talk to a group of guys there that have been addicted to drugs or you know trying to get off alcohol, and tell them a story about that. And uh, for a lot of people, it takes more than than just trying to quit. I mean, that's it's not that easy for a lot of things. A recovery center may be necessary, a dry-out center. Actually, a nurse told me after I told her my story of rolling back and forth and sweating to a couch for for a couple of days, she said, you shouldn't have done that, you know? And I said, I thought, well, that's the only way I knew how. And she says, well, you could have had um, a seizure and died. You should have gone to the hospital. And I said, well, nobody told me that. But how do you know that? Yeah, yeah. exactly. How yeah. are you supposed to know? Yeah, so um, there are places where you can dry out and they'll, they'll wean you off things, you know? They're... There are lots, of, especially now, and especially with this big opioid scare, which, you know, it kind of bothers me because you see these signs and 
Uh, one of them says you shouldn't be doing opioids without your friend with you. Well, if your friend's with you, they're probably, they're probably doing with opioids. They're probably with you. Yeah, that's right. I, I think these that's signs right. are a little bit... They should be like, you shouldn't be doing opioids, <laughs> opioids unless your mom's with you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Don't, don't do cocaine unless you're your friends with you. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to stick around and be clean watching. Yeah, your clean friend. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah, but I think they're mostly talking about the fentanyl scare, but I... I you know, this is just my opinion. I could be way off base, but I think the advertisement for it—they're way off base, and and they're doing—they're going about it wrong, and, and they're putting a bandaid over a pus-filled wound, mm. and they should be trying to get people clean instead of saying, "Go have this person with an EpiPen that they could stick in your shoulder." Be prepared for when it goes bad, kind yeah, of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's fentanyl all over the place, so you know, there's an abstinence thing there, and there's a recovery idea there, recovery center idea there, rather than. Um, trying to tell people how to keep doing drugs but do it safely. I, I can't see that working, to be yeah. honest with you. I just can't. And I can't see, again, like you mentioned, a clean person hanging out with another person doing fentanyl. Right. I, I don't see that. It doesn't make any sense at all. So you see them up in these C-train platforms, and and they're in bright fluorescent yellow and green, and, and that's all you see, and I, I just shake my head. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but <laughs> I just... I've never seen anything like that where that's helped somebody get clean or save a life. Uh, and, I've, and I've known a lot of people who have passed away from it. Mm. And the only thing I can think of is if they're hooked bad enough and they want to have a life as, and they just can't get off them, then go to a recovery center. Don't Easier said than done, though, right? Because, oh, I mean, you yeah. just admitted that you didn't. I mean, not that you knew that you could yeah. have, but yeah. it sounds like from your experience, you didn't know any better, which, fair enough, yeah. you you know what you know, or yeah. you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah, it's got to be a challenge because I guess one of the first steps would be having to admit that you have the problem yeah. Yeah. and then having support of someone taking you there. Yeah. Because I think, like, when people are in that, toughest situation it's hard to make decisions for yourself the right ones yeah in a way yeah so but well, I, I like to to go on your point though I, I would agree it's a bit of fear-mongering and it just seems like the latest headline to give people that are uninformed uneducated um, something to talk about or be scared about well and, and not to get into conspiracy theories or anything let's like get that. into it man let's go <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of the government puts a lot of these things out there in, in a distraction, smoke and mirrors, hey, we're really helping you here. And that's not the stuff that's helping. And how many bills were passed that they didn't tell you about in between all that in a way, right? Well, and you look into the Afghanistan thing and, and Jesse the Body Ventura, one of the old wrestlers, uh, they, I've watched things on, on Netflix and they've got reporters that have gone out there showing fields and fields and fields and massive fields of poppies where they're cutting them open and they're getting the heroin from. So then, then they're talking about how they get the heroin to the U.S. and how they're doing it through the DEA and the CIA. And they're bringing, it's a business. Yeah, it's yeah. a huge business, and they can't get busted for it. And they're bringing all kinds of heroin over to, to North America. And then they're trying to put up signs, don't take opioids. Yeah, <laughs> it's, totally. It's insane. It's just a big circle, man. A yeah. dog chasing his tail. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> you know, so stop bringing the drugs over. How about that for number one? Yeah, totally. And start busting the bad guys. How about that for a big one? That's not a band-aid on the pus-filled wound. That's that's an antibiotic right there. Right. Catch the guys who are dealing the damn drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Call me crazy. 
Yeah, no, and and that's it's funny. I mean, this could be this could go in a totally different topic yeah. because it, it brings up so many questions about like, but what if uh, you were that family in Afghanistan and that's your only resource, like that's your crop, right? And that's how you make your money. Like, wouldn't you do it? it it's anyway. We could. That's another episode, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously a tough transition out of you, and so you you got your you you just. You're, you got your head above the clouds now, clarity. Yeah. You know, you're feeling better. Yeah. Um, what was the first step after that? Was it like, I'm going to be a public speaker or do I got to get out of here? What, what did you do? Well, I just went and got a regular job and I, I worked delivering automotive parts. Okay. For, and I uh, talk about a grumpy bunch of guys. I was dropping off fenders and car parts. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was clueless and, and to be honest, I was sort of happy to get into the nine to five and just have a job and feel like a normal person because I didn't know from the age of 18 to 30, I didn't know what it was like to be a normal person. Yeah. I remember sitting down with my wrestling boots one day, tying these laces all the way from my toes right up to my knees, which was a 20 minute process, thinking, wow, this is what it must feel like for a businessman to put his business shoes on, his black shoes, dress shoes, <laughs> before he goes into the office for the day because this is what I do every day, and I thought, I don't know what it's like to be a normal person. So in a way, that was kind of cool. So to, to clear up my head and then get a sort of a normal job, but then I still had big, big aspirations. And, you know, I think there's, it goes along with height, I think, sometimes, too, just about six foot six. I think after being in the ring for that long, either it's trained or it's ingrained or God-given, I don't know what it is, but a certain amount of charisma helps. Uh, I can get up in front of a group of people and command a room and um, learning deep philosophies, you know, deep philosophies that are almost exactly backwards. They're so counterintuitive to how we're brought up, how we're raised, how we're trained, how our minds are trained here in North America because it's always beating out the Joneses or the bigger, better deal or the bigger, better thing or how much money do I want to make this year, which I don't think is a bad thing, but it's when you get to... Again, we can go a little bit into conspiracy theories. Who's really running the banks? You know, the Rothschilds own the Federal Reserve. They call it the Federal Reserve, but it's a privately owned oh, totally. bank by one person. The government is federal, and it's not really a federal bank. That's it, black and white, cut and dried. And it's the same thing with the Canadian bank or central bank here. So people in those leagues, you know, I could go down a list of Donald Trump and et cetera, who are millionaires and billionaires, they get to a point of greed, I think, and that's an attachment. That's that's a worry. That's a stress. That's if that's all your life it defines is about, them. Yeah, if you're a hedge fund manager, um, things like that, and all your thoughts all day long, and you're obsessed with just making billions or being the richest man on the planet. I think that's pretty sad. You know, money is all it is to you. I think that's a sad state of affairs. And then if you can't even love a person because you love your money so much. And I did get close to that near the end of my wrestling career. Like I said, it wasn't millions, but it was a lot. And uh, I was loving my money. And I didn't know how to love other people properly. I put the business of wrestling, I put my business before other people or before my girlfriend. I put the, the love of more and more money which I was making about five times the amount of money at the end of my wrestling career than I was in the beginning of my wrestling career yeah. in Japan. Um, the love of maybe physique and power before everything. And everything came secondary. And if you're making billions of dollars, why be so greedy? 
You know, you, you got a problem. That's an addiction. Do we need more? Yeah. Really? Do you, you need, need more, more of that billions? For what? Yeah. You know, and some say Unless it's to give away to help other people yeah. in a way, right? Yeah. Have some type of philanthropy yeah. is great and, and of course to make more money with that in mind, that's a very puritanical way of looking at it. It's a nice altruistic view. Um, but a lot of those people don't. They don't even look twice at it. Or they'll pitch a bunch of money over a hundred grand is nothing to a multi billionaire and they'll pitch a hundred grand over to some charity, but is there a second thought about it? I right. don't really know. What was the difference that was done? Yeah, yeah. And then when you see a lot of these CEOs and this is not conspiracy theory, it's fact. A lot of these CEOs making 500K a year or more, and they're working with, um, I'll just throw out some names and I may be off base on the names, but say the Cancer Society or, or say a lot of these different groups that are supposed to be helping people, but this fat cat sitting in a chair taking in all this money these people are donating. Right. And then how much is actually getting to the people who really, really need it? Well, from my understanding, and I've talked to a few people that have been collecting the money and quit because of this, 80% goes into the office and 20% gets to the people who really need it. Yeah. To me, that's just total crap. It's right? an off ratio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how about getting again to the root of the problem instead of putting a Band-Aid over a pus-filled wound again? Right, right. Or throwing money at something and just walking away. I mean, it, it's always good to be philanthropic. And I'm not saying anything against people uh, donating. I think that's a great thing, too. At least some of it's going to get to them. And if, if that's all you have time for, etc., great. But to actually go and, and meet those people and make a difference in their life or somehow get right to the scientists. Uh, and again, I may be way off base, but how long have we been working on a cure for cancer? How long? 30, 40 years? And they still haven't figured things out. Well, how many types? Well, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's a business, man. It's yeah. a business, yeah. right? It's, how many uh, billions have been thrown yeah. at it? Yeah. And they haven't figured out something yet? Yeah. That blows my mind. And, and maybe I'm just naive about it, but I don't think so. I think there's something going on there. But I think what you're trying to say, um, <laughs> if I may, is that it's just like, yeah, like donate, but almost donate with purpose. Be mm -hmm. charitable, but charitable with purpose. Yeah. Not give away because you can. Yeah. And be like, just give. It's it's uh, have a meeting or maybe yeah. just show up more than money. Yeah, yeah. And an ex girlfriend and I around Christmas time, we uh, we went out there and took some food to the guys down by the drop in center. You know, and it, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't worth nearly a hundred thousand dollars or anything like that, like some of the donations are. But the, the smile in these guys' faces, and to go do a soup kitchen thing or. You know, one of my favorite things to do again is to speak on how to get over, um, how to recover, how to how to get rid of the drugs or the alcohol out of your life, and feel like a full person again. Not not like because it's it's a hellish existence. It's a black, bleak, dark, and often suicidal existence to be hooked on drugs or alcohol, and to give somebody a light at the end of the tunnel who's struggling to get out of it at the time. To me, when I see a light go off in these people's eyes, and there's a group of ten or 20 or 30 people and they see that here's a guy who's doing you know fairly well in his life and he's beat this well damn it I can beat it too then yeah that's gratifying and that's a direct give right as far as I'm concerned I, I would totally agree with you there because it's, uh, it's a real-life example, right? Yeah. And uh, there's something to be said of uh, someone like yourself actually showing up 
uh, instead of being told from a video screen or, or whatever, reading it in a book, it it means more if you can have that internet, like belly to belly, right? Yeah. Interaction with someone and um, that connection. So, so you got enlightened is what it sounds like after, <laughs> right? You kind of you kind of found a way of I don't know looking at life a bit differently and and how you would maybe treat people. So how did that progress into your book and your speaking career? Well, that was the first part of it. I didn't really intend to do much with the book at first. And I started um, because I knew I was a bit of a grunt. I was fresh out of the locker rooms. I mean, there was a lot of swearing, a lot of name calling, a lot of knocking down. You can imagine the use of the English language wasn't at its peak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I knew that about myself too. So I would go and lay in a hot tub to soothe my muscles and I'd start reading Shakespeare. Cool. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'd like to start speaking better. And I know I have the brains to do it. I've just been hanging around with the wrong groups not to use good language. So I'm going to use the highest form of language that I could find here and start integrating into my everyday speaking with people. Right. And I uh, went from there to, well, I, I knew I had, I started reading. It was really funny. It, was, it might have been the last tour I was in Japan. I opened a nightstand and I was looking through this room and usually we would go out and we'd party almost all night long, sometimes till five in the morning, drinking our faces off in, in Tokyo and the night before we'd have to fly out. And this one night I stayed in and I just, you know, I don't have it for this anymore. I thought, I, I don't want to run around to these bars. I don't want to be drunk anymore. I don't want to be hung over anymore. I don't want to run around and try and play big shot. I'd just rather be alone right now. And so I was in my hotel room and I was kind of rifling through the drawers, not really expecting to find anything. And, rifling through my bags and I was bored and I, you know through that space I, knew I was anxious I mean type A personalities always had to move practically vibrating and shaking all the time and I was looking for something and I opened this door to this nightstand there was a, the Bible which I had already read and I was raised Catholic and then there was the book of the Buddha sitting next to it and I thought well that's, that'd, that'd be something interesting to just stick my nose into and see what I can see from it and uh I started reading all these philosophies that I thought, yeah, that's how I want to live my life. Yeah, that's how I want to feel. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wouldn't say I'm Buddhist today. I believe in a higher power, but I believe strongly in the Buddhist philosophies. And so a few years after that, a couple short years after that, actually, well, right away after that, I started studying Taoism, Hinduism, yoga philosophies, anything I can get my hand on, hands on. So... I could stop the anger because I was very aggressive and that business will breed that in you. Uh, so working as a doorman, which I did in between tours a lot of times, I had a short fuse and I was kind of spoiled because I had as much money or more than I ever needed at the time. And I wasn't used to that afterwards. And and uh, was very self-centered, very egotistical, which again, in that business, you have to be self-centered, egotistical, because you're not going to make it. You're in a role, right? Yeah, like yeah. you're you're playing that role. Yeah. And, uh... and in the locker room, I mean, it was 24-7. It gets, your neural pathways in your brain get carved so deeply. And, and fortunately, I had the, the gift from God or the intelligence or whatever it was to go, this isn't right. I don't want to feel this way. I don't, I don't, there are other people out there. I don't want to be that into myself. I'd rather be in it to other people. And I saw this cute little Japanese couple walking down the street one day in Japan. And they're giggling and smiling, looking into each other's eyes. And you could just see the love was there, you know. But it was more than just romantic love. It was like this real friendship and bond that they had. And I call it altruistic love. And I was sitting on this, the NWO bus, New World Order bus, 
because that was the faction that was connected to the U.S. at the time with Hulk Hogan and, and the original Razor Ramon and Diesel. And I thought, I could get karate kicked, I could get punched, forearmed. I wasn't even bruising anymore. And I'm looking out this window, I'm about 290 pounds, and I thought, I'm a wrestling machine, but I'm dead in the heart. Mm. Like, I, I felt like my heart was just a piece of charcoal, you know, and I didn't care about anybody or anything, and I just, the only purpose I had in my life was wrestling and making more money. And I look at this couple and I think, wow, I would love to have that in my life. And I just, I couldn't even comprehend it, you know, and that's stuck in my head. And still to this day, obviously, it's very clear to me. And um, I thought, well, what is that then? What is it that, that I want so bad that I don't have? And what, how can I work towards getting it? And I didn't even know what the word compassion meant. Right. I didn't know what empathy meant. So I set out to find out what those words meant and how they felt and how I could be more of a person like that and how I could have that love or altruistic love or deep, deep friendship with somebody else. And of course, the friendships in wrestling were all very temporary too. We'd be on the road together sometimes, other times not. Sometimes you'd never see somebody again. I mean, the friendships were just very passing. And, uh, and then I heard people talk about how they've been friends since they were kids with certain people. And I thought, wow, I don't know what it's like to be have a friendship into my 30s or 40s. A bond, like a bond with yeah. someone like that. Yeah. yeah, somebody you totally trust uh, for that many years. And I thought that would be pretty cool, even though I'd sort of surpassed that because I'd left most people behind. But um, So I started reading Taoism, and, and, which is very deep philosophy, and it's easy to misinterpret. Um, I read through it. I don't know how much of it I really understood. I reread some more recently. It made more sense to me. But I think you need a coach or a teacher to really take you through. And so within a couple, um, a year, year and a half of reading through all these philosophies, some way too heavy and way too deep for me at the time, but I still understood them. And again, I picked up the books later and totally understood them. Right. School. But I uh, learned from a Tibetan Buddhist monk of a specific lineage, which is very close to the Dalai Lama's lineage. And he would sit there and he would teach us, he would coach us, taking us through meditations. And um, I'd taken martial arts when I was a teenager and they'd have us sit, sit there and meditate. So I had a sense of a feeling of what it was like to meditate. But these were more meditation with a purpose, you know, how to let go of something or non-attachment, which I thought was beautiful. Um, how to stop being angry. And they talked about anger all the time, which I didn't realize at the time, but now I, I consider anger to be uh, frustration, or it can be stress, or it can be just irritability, or it can be when somebody upsets you and you have some resentment against them. I mean, anger can be, there's so many different volumes of anger. Variations, yeah, right? Yeah, and so that's mainly what was taught there, but it was perfect for me at the time because I still was a pretty angry guy. Yeah. But all these other topics too of, of letting go of things and then how to find a space of peace and calm or bliss, whatever you so chose. And I can say that to people and on this audio right now, it can sound like an impossibility, but you can literally, if you get taught properly, find a space of peace and calm and generate it more and more often and find it whenever you choose. And it's almost like a miracle. But anybody can do it. Anybody can learn it. It takes practice and, and it takes some good teaching, I believe. So this monk, he was, he was fantastic. His name was Punsag. And he would always compare the um, 
ideas of mental grasping, mental clinging, or attachment to Hagen dazs ice cream or something like that. Okay. You know, something we really have this urge for. We can't help it. Uh, it's a control over us. And so learning how to see that thing that has a control over us and not let, us control, let it control us anymore. Or having an urge for Pizza Hut, you know, and really loving pizza. I know personally I love pizza. And, and trying to get a grasp, a mental picture or a mental feeling of, okay, how do I practice detachment from this pizza? Have the urge but don't uh, fulfill the urge kind of thing. Yeah. Is that right? Or even go deeper and so deep into a space of bliss, calm, and peace and this state of total fulfillment within self that that pizza hut doesn't even matter anymore. Mm. That's a cool space. That is super cool. So let's transition because everything you described to me right there, everything is powerful, mm -hmm. right? So describe the depths of the power, if you will, between um, Rick Titan, WWF World Wrestling Federation champion wrestler, powerful, picked up a 200 guy, you know, 200 pound guy, no problem, body slam, um, to the power of being able to feel compassion. Yeah, well, Speak of the different depths or the weights of that, because sure. it, they both have a, a very different meaning, but the word is, is very fitting for both of those, Yeah, like well, situations. The video series I'm working on right now is called Power, Profit, and Stress-Free, and I'd love to get it out to the world because I, I know that that's part of my calling, you know. Um, over the last few years, I've done a bunch of different topics, and I felt that it was my purpose but I didn't realize, the biggest question people have is when they get into spirituality, how do I balance it? How do I balance this out? I don't know. I mean, at my job, I'm pushed, I'm pressured, I've got quotas, I've got time limitations, I'm, um, I'm super stressed out. Well, how can you do your job so you're not super stressed out? And some people will go, I couldn't do it unless I quit my job. Sometimes that's correct. And there is a way, and, and it takes a fair amount of work, but a practice of being de-stressed on a regular basis of finding that space of bliss and calm within the self and, and you can hear kind of how excited I am about it you can still be passionate about it you know you don't have to turn into a drone or a robot or uh, a mannequin or something like that because number one the human condition is that we do have passion and sometimes we do get angry we get upset but imagine minimizing how Think of a situation where a little while ago you're drastically upset. You're really, really upset about something. Well, imagine if you can go into a space where you can knock that down. And I'm not saying to zero, because I'm not there yet. And I'd love to get to zero one day. But maybe that would be... Do you think it's possible? I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would have to be in the afterlife. I'm okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> turn well, there's to, zero to worry or, about. <laughs> or become a saint or something like that. But there are always life challenges too. But imagine if you could turn that space of, say, anger, frustration, or irritability into half, 50%. So you don't feel like your head's going to explode. You're not turning beet red in the face. Because let's face it, anger and stress cause heart attacks. They cause strokes. They cause high blood pressure. They cause all kinds of health issues. You can be the richest person on the planet and then die next week. What good is that, right? So to have this this high stress job or make all this money, what's the point of all that unless you can be peaceful with yourself or find peace within and not be stressed to the freaking gills about it. So that's one of the things I coach people on too is how to keep doing the things that are stressing you out, but then take something called detached action. 
And so that you're maintaining a space within, but you're still doing all the physical things outside that you need to do and fulfilling them, but not having all this powerful, and because it is part of the human condition of being a human being, that mental grasping, that mental claim, which is so desperate and holding on to that stuff so tightly to just do them, but to the best of your ability and then remaining detached or not attached. And it's, it's a difficult process and there are going to be ups and downs through that. But what's cool is, is that the more you practice it, you're going to get your, your sense of what I call emotional equanimity through it which took me a long time to practice too, and I still make it a practice daily. And it actually still gets better year by year. I've been doing it for 17 years. Okay. Um, but to put up with somebody who's a boss or a coworker who's really irritating, or but what is irritating? Irritating is our state of mind watching, observing them. And so if we can practice stepping outside of ourself and then being the observer, and I'm going really fast on this, and it's not this simple. But to be the observer of self and then see emotions just as they be, begin to bubble up and say, oh, isn't that interesting? I'm getting upset. Isn't that interesting? I'm getting angry. To be able to do that, that's self-mastery. That's self-realization. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's true power. Right. So what I used to think was true power, and again, from the Eastern philosophies, they love the word impermanence, uh, or as in, in Christianity, uh, sort of like nothing lasts forever. Um everything's impermanent so I thought I was so strong and big and I was physically I was strong and big and powerful I was benching 405 pounds squatting 500 pounds that's four plates and five plates aside by the way the <laughs> just yeah just so you know <laughs> just so you have a visual of it I mean that, that's power you know and to be able to huck a person across the room and they'd have no no they can't do anything about it they're helpless and and, and I used to wrestle and bounce out a few pretty big guys and at that 400 pound bench press most guys wouldn't weigh more than 250 imagine what a shove that was mm -hmm. I didn't punch people out I didn't hurt them I was always reasonable with with what I had to do and usually would put them in a hold but to know that you're maybe one of the most powerful people on the planet maybe you're the hundredth or the thousandth or, or whatever most powerful person but you knew that Almost nobody could beat you up in a fight, for one. That feels pretty powerful. And even for a woman to walk down the street and know that. Imagine some of these UFC girls, right? <laughs> they could beat the crap out of most guys. You'd never know, man. You'd yeah. never know. That's it. Yeah, exactly. For, to have that kind of strength and walk down the street is, is a really powerful thing. And have no fear about it either. And um, just the strength. And then the power of audiences. And I've been in front of 50,000 people before cheering and going crazy. That's a rush. That's a feeling. And that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But again, it's, it's temporary. Everything's impermanent. Yeah. So for me to think I was so great, which I did at the time, all that's taken away after a while. And then where am I? And then I had a really big low. But then I'm still me. So why so low? I haven't changed. My soul hasn't changed. And so I started getting more into the idea of spirit. Mm. and soul and thinking wow now as the years pass my soul my spirit people can feel it people can tell me that they can get a sense of me or that they can feel that I'm in a good place or they can tell that I meditate a lot um, I've had a lot of people say that to me and I'm sure that the, the listeners have certain people they've been around that they get a sensation of that or at least a nice gentle warmth that fills their space 
you know, from a certain person. Mm. And with enough practice, that kind of comes along, I think. And um, the teacher that I had who, who taught us, the monk, we three of us walked out of the room and we said, did you feel that? Did you feel that? And we're all tripping out. We thought we were going crazy or something. And we each said out loud almost at the same time, he just filled the room with a sense of unconditional love. Everybody in the room could feel it. Just love from his heart space and it emanated out. How's that for power? Mm. You know? And to be able to lead people, to be able to give people great information to change their life, which, you know, leaving ego behind and, and having the Hindu and the yogic beliefs of egolessness or as much practice as you can, I think it takes a certain amount of ego to stand up on a stage and speak in front of a group of people. I have to admit that. At the same time, there's the passion behind it and then the teachings behind that and the hopes that the people in front of you are going to pick up on it, be able to use it, change their lives and make them better. That's not ego talking there. And um, it, that's power. Mm. I mean, to have power in your own life, to be able to choose your mood when things are going bad. In an instant. Yeah. Take a few deep breaths, go into alpha brainwave state, start meditating and totally change the way you're feeling no matter how bad things are. That's powerful. That is, that's really powerful. Yeah. Awesome, man, that's so cool. Um, well, let's, uh, That I think that's a great uh, kind of segue into what can people anticipate uh, with your coaching? Like, hey, I need a coach, I'm interested, like everything you just said resonated with my people, they're interested. Well, what can we expect from coaching with Rick Titan? Well, I coach at Better Medical Clinic downtown, <laughs> and um, the it depends on what the person really needs. Um, I have a lot of people come to me for anxiety, okay, and for a lot of different reasons. You know, it can be childhood trauma. So it's not just business, then. Like it's yeah. like you're just like a life coach. Yeah, is that is that proper to say life coach? Yeah, I think or? it's a bit of a cliche term, but as close as I guess we can get right, right. now. I've used different terms before, but... Well, what do you call yourself then? Um, I just like to say coach, you know, and, and sometimes spiritual guide or mentor. Uh, and it depends what the person's into. I mean, I've sat down with people who are atheists, and so they don't want to believe in a lot of it. But part of it is, is as I said, I believe in a higher power. So I wouldn't say I'm fully Buddhist, but, you know, if you want to call it part Buddhist, I don't know. Right, yeah. But the, the main factor out of all that Buddhist training, which I did for four years, two, three times a week, about two and a half hours each time, two or three meditations each time, it's almost like going to university, really, um, was, they call it Lo Jong, and that's called the training of the mind. And if you want to make it really simple, the training of the mind is then, okay, so I don't want to feel like this anymore. I feel like crap, or I'm really stressed out, or I'm having anxiety attacks, or I'm depressed. Um, I can't say I, I, I cure all, be all, end all for any of that. And again, some people are a good fit, some people aren't necessarily a good fit. I'll oftentimes sit down with somebody for about 20, 30 minutes and just see if it's gonna work for them and work for me. I mean, I can't work with people who don't really wanna change. And in the beginning, I sat there with people thinking, oh, I'm gonna help them change, you know? If they don't want to, they don't want to. And if they don't have their own burning desire or blazing goal of here's how I want to feel. And that's what I had when I finished wrestling. I knew I didn't want to be angry anymore. I knew I, knew I didn't want to be impatient anymore because I really was. 
I knew I didn't want to have that anxiety and that super type A mentality because it wasn't helping me in my life. It was just sending people away from me. But yeah, people that probably couldn't stand me at that point. Um, I want to learn how to be more compassionate, which a lot of my coaching clients are female and they have a better sense of compassion than most guys do, but it's good for guys to learn. But uh, a big part of it is just the de-stress, you know, uh, with the coaching, because I don't think we're really taught how to do that. And there are different kinds of psychology that, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, that are kind of close to this Tibetan lineage of, of uh, spirituality. But what I've done over the years... You mean they're close within the outcomes that they get? I think within the process. In the process? And, and probably the outcomes too. But then there's a big difference too because CBT doesn't use meditation really. I mean, maybe some of them do. But for the most part, it's like, you're going to write a bunch of stuff on a paper, you follow this, here's your homework, and come back and we'll do it different next time. Which I'll get people to do homework too. Um, but then it's more to what's the emotional charge behind what you're feeling. And then stepping outside of yourself, and this is a meditation and a practice in its own, if you can say, visualize your spirit or your soul, stepping 20 feet behind you and then watching you as the neutral observer of self that's heavy as it is yeah but to see that emotional charge which you'd feel in your gut or like a rope around your sternum pulling tight and in tibetan they call it shempa s-h-e-n-p-a and to keep now i want you to write down for the next week what your shempa was it could be three a day it could be just when your boss walks in the office and chews you out and how angry you got or it could be minor irritabilities, but you've got stomach anxiety going on. Well, you don't want that stomach anxiety anymore. You don't want your hands to shake anymore. You know, you don't want to sweat bullets anymore because your anxiety levels are so high. And whatever it is, having lost a lover, lost a job, lost a house, all these things, a lot of losses, change in life is really difficult. And people don't know how to, how to work with it. And we get told all these really simplistic tactics, but really it takes you know, an hour per session, and it takes a good meditation. And there are tens of thousands of meditations out there, but very specific meditations, uh, a parent who's not getting well, along well with their teenager and how to deal with that better. Well, I'm not a, a parent coach or anything by any stretch, but I can help that person find a space within themselves where they're gonna find their highest self and then be able to deal with their teen on a much higher level. Then, and not only earn respect, but get this sense out to the, to the child or the teenager where you're in control of self now. You're getting more self-realized. You're living at a higher level. You're playing a bigger game. You're, you're a bigger parent. You're a bigger human being. You're, you're in touch with spirit. Well, how can a, even a teen, and typically they do see this, they, they go, wow, mom, or wow, dad, you've, you've changed. Like, and then they start following your lead. They start listening to you more. And I've seen this happen tons of times. Um, other things that could just be, I'm working so hard. My boss has given me the job of three people now because they've done layoffs. Uh, I really can't stand it. It's too much for me. It's a sense of overwhelm. Well, then we can work on stepping back out of what that overwhelm feels like. And then practicing again and again that space of peace and calm or even which is more advanced, but getting into a bliss state on a regular and consistent and repetitive basis 
so that when you can get into that space, you can carry that space with you and the other stressful things, they don't bother you as much as you're carrying that space around with you. You own it. It becomes part of you and your neural pathways in your brain have literally started to grow over the old negative ones and grow in deeper these new positive ones and that's really how it works. So it sounds like, um, and forgive me if I if I dumb this down too much, but it sounds like everything you just said is that you're really a good coach, companion for people to learn compassion for themselves, so they can deal with the too busy job, the troubled yeah. teenager. The but <clears throat> I mean, from what I was taking that is that you really help. Oh, excuse me. You help get help people find the compassion in themselves to. Right give whatever they need to give at that moment or to continue doing what they need to do without having that anxiety, those those bad feelings. Yeah, yeah. And becoming a bit of a role model for others and, and for self. I mean, if you can look in the mirror and, and look in your own eyes every night before you go to sleep and say, hey, I did everything right today. Not that we always do everything right, you know, everyone makes mistakes, myself included, of course. Uh, I don't try and put myself above things. Uh, but I do look at self and it used to be that at the end of the day I'd say, oh crap, I did this or I did that or I don't feel good about myself because of this or that. I can say the majority of the time now I can look in the mirror and, and say, I said the right things to people today. I feel good about myself. I also spoke my truth, but I spoke it gently. Uh, I did it politically correctly. I didn't yell at anybody. I didn't swear at anybody. Um, Sometimes those are really hard things to do, especially when you're dealing with uh, an intense relationship or with, with a spouse, partner, uh, with a child, or in a space at work where yelling, swearing, being really reactive. And the cool part about this, especially with the training on the anger part, is that anger, I, I've got a bit of an acronym for it, and the A means after. So typically when you realize afterwards that we blew up, ah, oh, crap, I blew it, I yelled at that person, or I said the wrong thing, or I, I pounded my fist on the table and scared the crap out of my child, or whatever it is. We usually go afterwards, figure it out afterwards, and we'll have a regret about it. And some people do this their whole life. In fact, tons of people do this for the rest of their life. Um, then becomes the notice part, the N in anger. I created an acronym for it to make it really easy and so it's not too Eastern-y, it's not too deep, okay. you know, it's, it's simplified. So like you said, I like the word watering it down for, okay, people, yeah. Yeah, for our North American culture. So the end is to notice, okay, so I notice that I got angry. I wonder if next time I can notice while I'm getting angry. Mm. wonder if I can. And just the possibility of that, right? Um, and that's, so the next step there is catching it in the middle. So if you say to your kid, I told you not to, and you stop yourself, you're thinking, okay, I'm yelling at my kid. That's just going to scare them. It's not going to make a relationship any closer. All these thoughts can rattle through your head. That's a pretty good place to be, mm. at least catching yourself. That's the next step of evolution, I guess, in it. And then the final step is to catch anger just as it begins to bubble up. That's to catch upset just as it begins to bubble up, that's to catch stress, just as it begins to bubble up, because a lot of times we're stressed out for a long time, it can be three different small things, we don't even know what they are, and I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, I don't know why, I don't know why. Well, once you practice these principles and meditations, you'll start to get stressed, and you go, oh, I know why I'm getting stressed. Oh, isn't that interesting, I'm getting stressed. When is anger appropriate? If it's appropriate. 
Well, there's a couple of sayings that come from some ancient people. And one of them is to meet people where they're at. Uh, I don't think that you could go on the rigs or go into wrestling uh, or you know a few other things like a really fast-paced restaurant say and not be snappy with people not not be abrupt um, and then just sort of put a shell up and not take it personally you know um, if somebody's really hurt you or if there's physical danger I can't see that anger wouldn't be completely inappropriate and also it's almost like how could you not you know um, so then how would we um... How, how would we, uh, quick technique, don't give away all your secrets, because yeah. that's what the coaching's for, obviously, but what's a quick technique where we could uh, not be so angry anymore? Well, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, how do we not hold on to anger? I think how do we digest that? Yeah, I don't know if it's a quick technique. I mean, maybe to pay attention to self. And again, we're talking self-realization. And that's a process. That's not a word, self-realization, right? It takes a lot of practice. It, it can take months or even years. But it, it's bit by bit, and it's sort of, I always compare it to going to the gym, training of the mind is similar to training in the gym, because you start off with light weights, you don't really know what you're doing. And like those ten, tens of thousands of meditations out there, if you've ever tried online meditations, a lot of people say, well, I tried meditating once, it didn't work. Well, yeah, you tried a diet once and it didn't work. I tried working out once, it didn't work. You can't go to the gym ten times and undo ten years of bad eating. Yeah, yeah. Yet there's you go to the gym consistently for a month or two and then you go to pick up some groceries and you got a bunch of heavy bags you're moving to your vehicle and all of a sudden they're really light and they're really easy. Like, wow, how'd that happen? Well, it happened because you just did 50, 60 workouts slightly increasing the weights and your muscle tone and your strength over some time, over a few months, you know? So really the idea of learning the, so two, two parts, learning the philosophies and they're ancient philosophies but I've, I've watered them down reworded them because the first few speeches I, I did were way over people's head they were confused really more. deep eh yeah, yeah they were way confused when they <laughs> the blank stare yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out and somebody a good friend of mine actually Joe Farzani the old football player he was like Rick I don't think a lot of people understood what you were talking about <laughs> but to be able to meditate find a space and, and to be able to notice that anger as it begins to bubble up is a practice. And, um, and it's an ongoing practice. Sometimes I still get a little bit angry and I'll catch myself in the middle of it. But I don't allow myself to go to the point of ever yelling at people. I never yell at people anymore. Um, I don't allow it to get to the point where I hate people because I'll find a compassionate space. You never know what they're going through. You know, but that's also meet them where they're at. Yeah, yeah. So the practiced specific meditations can be on practicing compassion while you're breathing. So as we're speaking right now, we're in beta brainwave state, and as we meditate and breathe, and the body relaxes, the brain relaxes, the brain waves change, turn to alpha brainwave state. Then you're in a totally different state where you can actually plant things into your subconscious mind and supplant other negative things out of your subconscious mind so you're not as reactive anymore. But it's a practice just like going to the gym. It might take 60 times before all of a sudden you go, hey, I didn't get mad. Mm. And he used to freak out every time that happened. Isn't that cool? Because that's a cool feeling to go, and it, and it just happened. I, mean, I guess that's a self-reflection on its own, catching that when you 
used to get angry at something and now you're not. Yeah. Like something that used to trigger you didn't and you're like, oh man, that used to, that might, a week ago that would have really pissed me off. And yeah. now I'm like, hey, not really, right? Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. It's the same thing. I Same idea, I guess, as training the body, training the mind that mm. way. So you've got the philosophies behind it. You've got taking a look at the bigger picture, the universal picture of what you think your problem is, which our problems a lot of times we think are so massive but when we get to take a big universal view of it, we see how tiny they can possibly be. Yeah. And, and that's what I help people through a lot of times. And just seeing it from this way and that way or another person's way or being the observer of self and your neutral spirit or soul, seeing your body with all this shempa, these emotional charges jumping up and making you feel horrible, but then just viewing them from outside. I don't want my body to feel horrible anymore. I don't want to feel nauseous in the gut or like I've got to pull on my sternum anymore. I can't stand that feeling, so I'm going to work on myself. And it's got to be that important to the person if they want to get coaching to go, I really want to change. I really believe in this, and I know I can do it, but I need some guidance, just as I needed guidance when I first stepped into it. So you can't do it all for me is what I'm hearing. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why not? What am I paying for? Yeah, so it's really, it takes, uh, someone has to be willing. Absolutely. It's like, I guess, uh, quitting uh, cigarettes, right? Like yeah. people are always saying, oh, I need to quit, I need to quit. Why? Yeah. Do you want to or yeah. do you need to? Because it's like, it's almost like the bus bench, like you're saying, right? It's just thrown at you like it's, uh, it's the, I don't know, the thing of the week kind of thing, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, I should quit, but it should be a feeling. It should be a want. There should be a desire there. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of pride that goes along with that. I mean, I started doing some seminars on anger and... Um, you know, a lot of people fold their arms and go, I don't have an anger problem, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. It kind of looks like you do. <laughs> yeah. You don't you know? look loose and happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or I'm not stressed, I don't know what you're talking about. It's for a person to realize it, and, and like they say in the 12 steps, to admit that they've got a problem, number one, is especially hard for males because of male pride. And um, not as hard for a lot of females, but women, because of the job force now, and uh, a lot of times single moms have had to take on the role of men in a lot of places. So they get more of a masculine way about them and more of a masculine thought process and, and a lot more tough pride behind them. And so some, some of these women might be having trouble admitting that they have an issue with something too. But hey, we've all got issues. I mean, I'm sitting here right now. I've got my own issues. You know? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny too because it's, uh, you know, the example of, oh, I'm not stressed. And you can obviously something is tweaking them. They, they seem a little stressed. Yeah. I feel like for me personally, one of my challenges is if, uh, if I was asked that in a time where I felt it, yeah. is that, yeah, I might feel stressed. But I don't know what about. Yes. What is it? And I think that's the challenge is yeah. that it's like, okay, I might be stressed, but now what, Rick? Like, I'm stressed, but yeah. but how do we pinpoint if it's uh, smoking, not smoking, wife, relationships? Like, what? Like, I think that's the challenge of that, identifying. That's a beautiful question because that's what a lot of people come in and they say, I'm super stressed out, but I don't know why. Well, then we begin almost like, gross word, but corpse, dissecting it, mm. dissecting what's going on in your life. Oftentimes I'll take them into a meditation, get them really relaxed. So it's all guided meditations. They don't really have to do anything except go along with what Just I'm saying. Listen to me. Yeah. And I've taken uh, some courses on uh, hypnotherapy as well, but I wouldn't say I'm a hypnotherapist at all by this, any stretch of the imagination. But some of the tone of voice, and you can probably hear it my tone of voice right now, 
take somebody into almost a hypnotic trance, mm. and then we dig around, okay, so what happened here? What's really bothering you there? And they're so relaxed and so at peace that they just give it up. Like, oh, okay, well, this happened. And a lot of times people are so tense or too proud, they don't want the problem that's going on in their life. And I actually had one time over the years, a woman was really stressed out, really upset, and um, in, a, in, a, in a relationship with her husband. But all the hints she'd been dropping, she wanted to make it seem like it was this fantasy relationship. But I, I finally asked her, I said, do you think there's some resentment against your husband there? She didn't want to talk about it. Mm. And it was so uncomfortable for her to probably talk to a male about it as well. Like, it's not your business, mister. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. That she, I could, I could see her whole demeanor change. She turned beet red in the face, but she realized it. And maybe I helped enough for her to say to herself, yeah, I've got some resentments towards my husband. And right. maybe that's something to work on. And maybe not with me. She left, she never came back. Yeah. But I think that was a, a trigger and a realization point for, but, you know, 99% of the time somebody will come in, we can have a conversation, I'll ask them some questions, and sometimes they'll get the ball rolling so well that they'll just go, okay, well, it's this, that, and it's this, that, and this, and that. Some people are just so open that they do that too. And they, and then I might ask them, you know, swerve them sideways a little bit, and then go, do you think, for example, if we're clinging on to something, say uh, an ex, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, husband, wife, and we can't let go of them, and we're still hurting and aching deep inside, and it's all day, every day, and it's driving us crazy, that's something worth getting help over as far as I'm concerned. But then we go, okay, from the Eastern philosophy, I'm mentally grasping or mentally clinging onto that person, situation, or thing. And then we figure out which one it is of those three. And almost every time it's one of those three things, person, situation, or thing. Oftentimes then, well, it was the situation. I mean, I loved that person, but I knew I wasn't in love with them anymore. I knew we were more friends, or it was just horrible as a disaster. But I loved being in a relationship. I loved the house we were in. Mm -hmm. I loved the stability of it. I loved cooking and having dinner with somebody every night. I loved working nine to five and having somebody to come home to. They realized it was a situation. And it wasn't really that person. Well, what a relief in a sense to go, what well, wasn't really the person anymore? I'm free. You know, but I, still, I would still love to have a relationship and have that situation. But then, yes, you can again in the future. Yeah. And you figured it out. And all this time you're focused on mentally grasping, mentally clinging so desperately onto what you thought was a person. But we discovered together it was a situation. And that's sort of the sideways part of it. Well, that, and that's powerful. Yeah. That's a different type of power shift, right? Well, and, and, and a perspective. or And if there are degrees of enlightenment, what a step of, of a nice few steps a step up, up towards yeah, enlightenment. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's speak about, you, you tapped into something a, a few minutes ago there as you're speaking. Um, talk about some of your current role models. Let's see. You know, I've got some that nobody would ever heard of, have heard of. Um, but then share them so that we can. Sure. Uh, somebody that just about everybody knows from the secret, John D. Martini, and we keep in touch. Yeah. Did the breakthrough experience. I went through that. It was fantastic. It it was a lot like the trainings I'd taken before. Is that, you know, there really, there really is no good and no bad in the universal picture, and you can look at things that happen bad and, and, and 
life where I broke my ankle, say, I broke my neck, I had a hip replacement. I mean, they were, they were, they were no fun, for sure. And it seemed horrible and almost my life is over at the time. Um, I think as you mature and, and even get older, you know it's going to be a couple of months and I'll be okay. But when you're 18 and you break your ankle, you think your life is over. Totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially if you're a soccer player or like your yeah. livelihood at that point is your identity. Your ego is involved yeah. in that. Or... Yeah. Um, but he was teaching for two days straight with all kinds of great examples. And I would say he's within that realm. I, I would say he's damn near genius or a genius, you know, to take people through these things and take groups of 50 people through it and run around to every table with all the energy he has for 48 hours straight practically, go from, from nine in the morning to a lot of times midnight. Yeah. And it was exhausting but exciting at the same time. And so life's a double-sided magnet. We don't like to look at it that way as normal human beings in North America, the way we're raised and everything else. So oh, this is good, so I should want more of it, try for more of it. That's bad, well, I should... Well, he always says that life's not a double-sided, life is a double-sided magnet. And there also is good in bad, and there also is bad within good. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we really loved our mothers, say, for example, is one of his theories, well, then what happens to you afterwards when you leave home, which eventually you're going to have to do? Then you're clean, you're, you're reliant on somebody else, you may not know how to do your own laundry or cook your own food. Those are the bad things within that. Right. And, um, or I got out of this relationship and, and uh, you know, but I depended on that person for everything. Or I had this horrible relationship, which I myself have had about, well, at least two very, very bad relationships. At least two. Okay, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two that you can remember vividly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I look back too, and it, it's, what did you learn? Okay, well, red flags for one. Um, how much can I cope with? What, how highly do I think of myself? Where am I in life to where my self-esteem is high enough to where I'm not going to put up with that in my life? No matter what, no matter how badly I might want to be in a relationship. Knowing your self-worth. Yeah, self-worth. And um, signs leading into it. You know, if, if this person's going to be right for me or treat me well or whatever it is that I have expectations about, which sometimes expectations are... are something that aren't that great in a relationship either because they can be off base but um or not um or not given yeah. people have we have expectations of people but we've never said that we have that expectation of them yeah and so that's that's tough how can someone live up to the expectations they don't know yeah. that are expected of them yeah absolutely and and so for me personally i'll just throw out a few things i expect to be respected and i'll act with respect or in a respectful manner um, you know, there's certain things in a relationship, of course, like cheating, beating, things like that, that are never ever acceptable from either the male or the female side. Um, to be kind, to care about the other person's feelings, which sound like such basic things, but some people almost have no conscience and they just don't care about their partner's feelings. If you've never practiced it, yeah. you've never felt it, it's hard to tap into yeah, that. Yeah, it's amazing how robotic some people are. Um, to have fun together, to have some laughs together, and the old saying of being best friends, to be able to relate, maybe to tell some off-color, incorrect, politically incorrect jokes together just between the two of you. Right. I mean, that seems to be something that most couples have, and they get a, a good laugh out yeah. of, but not without being mean or vindictive or, or horrible or anything like that. Just these, all these different qualities about what would be a good match for you, and, 
And, uh, you know, for me, I can go to the extreme end of, yeah, screaming doesn't work for me. Yelling doesn't work for me. Name calling doesn't work for me. Insults don't work for me. Swearing doesn't work for me. So if there's any of that showing up, then I just, I think it's a vibrational level thing too. And hopefully, and I like to think, and other people say that I'm vibrating at a higher level than a lot of people that they've met, which is a, a nice, great compliment to sort of reaffirm, well, I've done all this work. I hope I am. Right, yeah, of course, yeah. You've I, put in the practice. Yeah. You've uh, you've uh, worked on that muscle, if you will. Yeah, and, and then the higher vibration just isn't a match with what they call the lower uh, rajasic in yoga, they call it a rajasic, heavy, grunting, low vibration. That's an extreme. That would almost be like a biker or a criminal a biker. or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some kind of a jailbird type or something like that. Or just somebody who's kind of thud, thud there. But if you're vibrating, and they say, if you're vibrating at such a high level, say enlightenment is like the angels where you'd be vibrating so high you can actually see things right. that are beyond the normal realm. And I won't get into that because that's not my specialty at all. <laughs> that's another episode. Well, yeah. And it is some people's specialties, and I do have some belief in it. I just haven't seen it, but I think I've felt things like that. You okay. Know, uh, surreal things myself. So. so who's another role model then? Another role model is uh, he's a Sikh friend of mine, and he follows the religion to such precise rules that he, he never ever judges. He, um, he's so kind to everybody, never says anything bad about anybody. Um, How the hell does he do that? <laughs> it's, it's, well, Wouldn't we like to know? Hey? Well, and then there's, there are things that even talking about, say, these conspiracy theories are kind of knocking on people saying, oh, they did this wrong, they did that wrong. Uh, he just doesn't go there. And it's, it's like being around an enlightened being. You know, he wears a turban, he's got a beard. And he looks into your eyes, and, and it's it's got this almost lost soul look, but also... But he sees you? He, he sees you. Yeah, he's looking into your soul, and you can feel it. And sometimes he gives me little pieces of advice where I just walk away and I go, yeah, yeah. Or I'm not practicing my own stuff right now. And mm. I need to. Um, another one is... I'm sorry, what was his name? Uh, do you mind share? You don't want to share? I don't know if he would like me to okay, share. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. yeah. And he's that humble. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another fellow who, who's into bhakti yoga, which is more of the Hare Krishna uh, way of doing it. But they believe chant and be happy. And chanting is the world that we're in in this time, uh, Kali Yuga time, they call it. And it's, it's a time almost of Roman Empire uh, falling apart. You know, with all the obsession of all the horrible things people are doing in the decay of society. And really, you watch TV, you look around you, and you think of all the things that are popular, like the Kardashians, and really the, the manners, at least, let's say, of the president of the U.S. We're in a time of decay. I mean, it's, it, it's disgusting a lot of things you see out there. And, and again, he might be doing great things for his own economy and maybe for his billionaire buddies too, or maybe he is a good president in somehow the economy in the States, but the, the manners, of, I, I just find them totally unacceptable, really. Um, and I think most Canadians probably feel that way anyways. But um, 
So we live in this age of Kali Yuga, this age of decay and all these things around us. So theirs is to chant and be happy. But along with that comes the philosophies. And they don't promote that that much. Mm. But there's a big thick book called the, um, the Bhagavad Gita. And it's really hard to read and it's really repetitive. And I tried to read it before I met him. And I was sort of understanding it. The main idea really is, is an inner struggle. And so, to make it really, really short, because I know we don't have a ton of time, it's a cousin getting together with another cousin, but they're at war with their families. So they've got uncles and other cousins out there, and I think the war is over land, as far as I understand. And they have to go and shoot with, one's an archer, an expert archer in a chariot, and um, Krishna and Arjuna. So Krishna is an embodiment of a human being, a relative, but really God. And this beautiful, uh, blue-faced, handsome man who's giving wisdom to Arjuna. And as they're going through all these battles, he keeps giving them pieces of wisdom. And really, back in those days, if you didn't go into battle, it was a huge dishonor. You, it was your duty. And so that's what he keeps telling Arjuna, is this is your duty, and I know you're having a struggle. And Arjuna keeps saying, I don't want to fight, I don't want to kill my relatives, and it's wrong, and killing is wrong. I'm gonna go into the forest and disappear. And he keeps saying this and saying this, and Krishna, who's, who's the god in this situation, goes, no, you must do your battle. You must do your duty. This is your, even your spiritual duty to do for your family and for your whole nature, everything around you. And so a lot of times we have to do things that we don't want to do, but it turns out it was just a dream anyway. What? Yeah. And it's talking about the inner struggle that we have. Well, I want to do this. Well, but no, you shouldn't. Well, I, 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 I'm going to let that person have it, but I want to be spiritual. You know, all these inner struggles that we have, that's sort of what the book is about. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really deep, man. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm glad you actually explained it at the end there, right? Because, yeah. yeah, it's... Uh, it's funny how um, we just uh, take these stories differently, I guess, and, and uh, adapt them to our lives or our certain situations at that, that time in life, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, we're going to wrap up here. We pretty much hit everything and more. I mean, we went really deep there. So just want to take a second and say thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me, man. Like, that was really great. And um, I hope, uh, you know, all the listeners out there get something out of this, which I really feel like they will. Um, but to wrap up the interview, one last question. Uh, what's your favorite thing about Calgary, Alberta? My favorite thing about is the people. Yeah, I moved here years ago. Uh, to become a professional wrestler, to become part of Stampede Wrestling. And uh, in the meantime, was working as a doorman in the bars. And I'm from Vancouver, and everyone says, why don't you move back by the ocean? And my family's out there too, which I miss them. But I found it so clicky out there, and I just found it so easy to make friends out here. You know, and I think people aren't walking around staring at the ground, and I've, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled to different countries been through New York and Toronto where everyone's staring at the ground. They won't dare look at you or say hi to you. And in Calgary, almost everybody in the street, you can walk by, make eye contact, smile, and, and even make new friendships. And I, I love the idea of, in the Eastern philosophy, it's called being a bodhisattva. And part of that is to be a little bit more enlightened. Uh, that's what the sattva part is. Um, and to be a friend to the world is what the whole saying really just means, is to open up your life and be a friend to the world. And I don't practice it that well as I'd like all the time, but we each need our own personal time and space as well. 
but I do remind myself almost every day is to go out there and be a friend to the world. And Calgarians are great for that. That's awesome, man. Thank you again for sharing. And uh, where can people find you? Well, the best place is probably Facebook. Okay. Uh, or you can email me at rick at ricktitan.com. I'm in the process of probably doing a new website on power, profit, and stress fee free where profit does come into play. Uh, just as a, a quick rundown on the whole thing with power, different kinds of power. And I'm not saying anything against strength or big size or having power, except for the fact that it is permanent. One day it is gonna to come to an end. And when it does, there's a crash. Hmm. So either be ready for it or learn how to be ready for it or transition through that. And I can, I, I've been there doing right. that. I can help people transition through that. And then profit, well, what is profit? I mean, if you only wanna live within your means, that's fine. But I think people hit a certain point in life too, or they're bright enough in their 20s to figure it out. You gotta retire someday. And then what are you gonna do? You know, live in the streets or eat cat food? Or, right? and that's a reality for a lot of yeah. Canadians and Americans. So the profit part, it's not, it doesn't have to be greedy. And you can be a philanthropist through it. You know, you make a lot of money, you can give away a lot of money and help things out, help create a building for homeless people or whatever it is. Um, profit so that you can go on a vacation once in a while. What happens if you don't go on a vacation for years? You do get cranky, you know, and your life is small. It, and it's not as fun and to, to feel more enlightened or at least more happy, we need to have a few nice things in our life, I think, and not worry and not stress about money. Because the more worried and the more stressed you are, the less good you are to the rest of the world. So there's nothing wrong with profit. You know, having some profit in your life, having money in your life. They make it sound in all these spiritual ways. Uh, quick example, the monks would walk around with begging bowls and people would give them money for spiritual teachings and they could build the temple too, etc. and keep fed. But life doesn't work like that anymore. You know, it's 2018 now and we need profit. We need to have a roof over our heads. We need to have food. We need to have all the staples of life and a little bit extra. What if you want to help out a friend or a family member or make sure you do have that good retirement? So. You know, even the cryptocurrencies that I've been getting involved with, I think are a great thing, which I had no interest in whatsoever a couple of years ago. And stress-free, of course, which we talked a lot about. But I've had where I thought I was at the peak of the world in physical things. You know, I had everything I ever wanted. Nice place, nice truck, uh, making more money than I knew what to do with, overflowing in my bank account in my 20s. Not bright enough to know what to do with it either at the time. World Championship title, uh, just having this promotion handing me over money like I, I couldn't believe, and I was miserable. I wasn't happy, I stressed out all the time. I wasn't nice to be around. I was always frowning, always into my business, which there are a ton of businessmen and businesswomen in Calgary who are so focused on their business, they don't know how to de-stress from it or let go from it at all. Right. I love coaching people like that too. So that's that's a really big part of it. And then the video series that I'm making, and I'm going to be putting it out there and putting it for sale on Facebook. But yeah, rick at ricktitan.com, or even just get me on Facebook. You can friend me, or personal message me is the best way. Tell me a little bit about what's going on in your life, and then we can meet in person maybe for a 30-minute and see if it is a good fit, or see if, you know, if I think I can help you, and go from there, and hopefully make your life a lot better. Awesome. Sounds good. So yeah, everyone, make sure you check out Rick Titan and uh, thank you. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Sick, man. 
still recording. Okay, there you have it. How great was that? Um, way more in-depth than I ever intended it to go with Rick there, but it was really cool um, learning about his transition kind of out of the ring and how uh, mentality uh, has such a huge role in that. And um, even the, the, uh, like the, the idea of power and how that can mean so many different things. It doesn't always mean smashing things, right? It can be uh, powerful with being patient and, and things like that. So huge thanks to Rick and thanks to you guys for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and we'll see you guys around the community.